Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And today we find him on the road to Emmaus. Did you see the two in your mind's eye walking that Emmaus road, heads bowed, passing between them the off-rhythm awkwardness of mournful conversation? Didn't you get the impression that all they wanted now was to go home? And who would blame them? You know what it's like when your plans have fallen through. When you interviewed well but lost the job to somebody else. When a moment's inattention led to an accident. Or a fleeting foolishness brings the costly traffic ticket. When the marriage fails, or the parent stumbles again, or you lower the casket. When what you had or thought you had, or maybe just had hoped to have, is now gone. You don't want to stay where you have felt such emptiness. You want to turn your back on it and walk away from it. Maybe you just want to go home. The disciples that we find on that road to Emmaus hadn't even been able to head for home right away. Devout Jews were not about to travel on the Sabbath, especially the highest Sabbath of the year. So wherever they were on Friday, there they would stay until Sunday morning. They had been in Jerusalem or maybe camped on the hills just outside, for a week already. And they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, almost certainly. Just as God's most devout followers had been doing for more than a thousand years. And they had followed the anointed of God, Jesus, son of David, as he entered the city of David accompanied by shouts, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, you are our salvation. Save us now. That was the previous Sunday. Before they even entered the gates the following Friday morning, the man they had followed to Jerusalem was hanging on a cross outside the city. 
and everything was in chaos. Jesus had been captured and crucified, and the only other leaders the hundred or so followers had known, the central core of his disciples, the twelve, had scattered. Word came that one of them had even committed suicide. They were not to be found because they didn't want to be found. How they spent their Sunday, we can only speculate. Did those two find their way to the upper room? Or more likely, did they sit up all night on the Mount of Olives, where they and the other pilgrims had camped, staring into the night and wondering, what now? What next? When Sunday morning came, as eager as they had been to be gone, they stayed for a while because the most incredible stories were circulating. The prophet's body was not in his tomb. Women were talking of visions of angels. Peter and another disciple had run to check things out, and they verified that the Messiah's tomb was empty, but him they had not seen. Disheartened, disoriented, walking in chaos and tempted by hopes that seemed both vague and unwise. Cleopas and his companion, I've often thought it was Mrs. Cleopas, finally turned their backs on Jerusalem for that seven-mile walk home. People walked somewhat briskly in those days. It probably would take less than two hours to cover the, the distance between Jerusalem and Emmaus. But as they walk, between the silences, they pass their grief back and forth between them as if it's a burden too heavy for one to carry alone for long. You know that's the way that grief is usually carried. And then Jesus came. He came up from behind them most likely, and they were kept for some reason from recognizing him. To them he's just a stranger, what are you talking about? He asks. What do they say? Do they let him in on their grief? Do they think they'll be able to keep from breaking down as they try to tell the story from the beginning? Who is this stranger? What side is he on? Is he a possible convert? Convert to what? Or is he a threat? If you've just spent the last two nights fearing arrest, how much would you trust an overly inquisitive stranger 
who just happens to show up on the road. But Cleopas stares it. He pours out his pain. He opens his heart. He lets known his confusion and his dashed hopes. Then the glad hosannas, the deep betrayals, and the sudden violence. The now it's full and now it's empty tomb. And how the prophet of God, mighty in word and deed, was hunted down and killed by the people entrusted with the very house of God and its sanctifying sacrifices. Fear and resentment scorch the edges of the words in which he hands a a piece of his emptiness to the stranger who asks to see it. And after he has poured out his soul, after he's given words to his pain, what is the stranger's reaction? You're not that bright, are you? Not the sharpest tool in the shed. Foolish ones, he calls them. Kind of slow, aren't you? Then he gives them the gift. He reminds them that God has a plan. He opens the scripture and reads from it from memory. Who would know the scripture better? From Moses and from all the prophets, he explains to them that this was always going to be so. that it was foretold and necessary and intentional. I don't know if they were still scared, but they certainly wanted to hear more. And they asked him to stay. And they sat down to dine And Jesus was made known to them in the familiar act of breaking the bread. After giving thanks and putting a blessing on it, he breaks the bread. And then it's clear to them, this is Jesus. We might think right away of how Jesus is truly present in his supper and how he's given to us in the breaking of the bread. But that's not what these disciples are reminded of because we know for a fact from the gospel according to Mark that on Thursday night they weren't there in that upper room. It was just Jesus and the twelve. But they might have been there when he fed the multitudes. They were certainly with him at least once when he acted as host at thousands of meals that he shared with his disciples over the past three years. And it's also quite possible 
since our expectation is that the nail prints are not necessarily just in his hands, but maybe even in his wrists, that as he lifts the bread, they see the scars. I don't want to go beyond what the scripture says. But whether it's the word of God or something in his manner or whether he has suddenly allowed them to see him, they recognize that it's Jesus. And now they've got to get back to Jerusalem. But now they take the miles at a run. They're thinking about how their hearts burned within them when he opened the scripture and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. But they're running to Jerusalem because they know that there are people there who need to hear the news. We get to Jerusalem. They learn that nearly everything they had said to Jesus was unintended irony. Cleopas had asked Jesus whether he was the only stranger to Jerusalem who didn't know what had happened. He's no stranger to Jerusalem. It is the city of his ancestor, David. And he knew what had happened. It all happened to him. And he knew it would happen thousands of years before it did. He had always known that it would. He had known about it all of human history. He would have to suffer like this in obedience to the Father, in mercy towards sinners for the life of the world. And he had carefully shaped all of human history to make sure that it happened in this way. You might have heard the interpretation that most Lutheran scholars, myself included, have of the identification of the angel of the Lord. There is a particular angel, not Gideon, nope, not Gideon, not Gabriel, Gideon's not an angel. In fact, I'm pretty sure he was a coward, but that's okay. But anyway, uh, there's not Gabriel, and it's, it's, it's not Michael, but there is one angel of the Lord who shows up when the, when the whole covenant is threatened, when there is a, a moment that has come that is, is a turning point of history, the angel of the Lord shows up and he accepts worship, which no other angel does. And when he speaks, it always says, and God said. So either this angel and God are a, a, a buddy team, or more likely, this is the second person of the Trinity before he took on flesh. Who accepted the assignment from his father that he was to suffer and to die. And showed up throughout human history to make sure that that's exactly what would happen for the salvation of the world. Another way that Cleopas' words are ironic is he said that he had hoped that Jesus 
would be the one to fulfill all Scripture and to ransom Israel. Well, it turns out that hope was valid. They were right. He would and he did. And they were there to see it. We heard Peter himself tell us how, how Israel and all believers in Christ were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but salvation made manifest in these last times for our sake, who through him are believers in God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. And then the third ironic statement is when they said to Jesus that Peter had searched but not seen Jesus. And when they get to the disciples and blurt out the news that Jesus has risen from the dead and they stand bending over, wheezing and trying to catch their breath from running seven miles to share this good news, over the pounding of the pul- their pulses in their ears, they hear, yeah, we know, he appeared to Peter. Isn't that great? Everything they thought they lost was returned. Everything they thought they knew was turned upside down. And they couldn't be happier about it. And neither could I. Because I have been too often on that Emmaus road. Feeling nothing but loss. Living nothing but grief. But every time, Jesus came. And it turns out he was never away from me. But he came to give me what I never would have had if he had not come. He gave me life for death. Blessings and benediction and wonderful surprise. He gave me comfort and companionship and the security of knowing that God himself fights for me. And he has come to give you what you would never have if he had not come. There is nothing and no one that can be taken from you that Jesus cannot give you back. In his holy name, amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.